Welcome to this talk on consuming REST APIs. I'd just like to start just getting a little bit of a feedback from the audience. Who here has consumed an API? And who has created an API? And in this group, would you self-identify, how many of you would self-identify as a developer versus a non-developer? So this talk is not terribly technical, uh, but hopefully we'll provide plenty of food for thought around the subject of APIs. And that's just a beginning taste of all the food metaphors that I have in store for you. Hi, my name is Daryl Miller. You can find me on Twitter at Daryl underscore Miller. And I regularly blog about all things HTTP Web API related at bizcoder.com. I work for a company called Runscope. Uh, we build tools for developers and QA professionals to log, measure, and monitor web APIs. I'm a Microsoft uh, Integration MVP, and I'm a co-author of the O'Reilly book Designing Evolvable Web APIs. And I've spent many, too many hours on Stack Overflow, particularly in the REST tag. Continuing on with our food theme, I'd like to discuss today's menu for this talk. For appetizers, we're going to discuss clients' SDKs and the problems with managing client SK, using client SDKs and actually writing client SDKs. We'll discuss the challenges of consuming a REST API when people have so many different definitions of what REST means to them. And moving on to the main course, we'll consider the effect of change, the reasons for it, and why you should protect your clients from changing APIs. Code reuse is one of a really high-priority goal in software development, and we'll discuss the constructs of HTTP that deliver reuse most effectively. One of the primary goals of REST is to allow independent evolution of system components through the use of loose coupling. But the client has some unique properties in this relationship and we'll discuss some of the secrets of building clients. We'll also discuss some architectural concepts to consider when building clients that will help make your clients more adaptable to change in the future. And for dessert, I'll point you to some additional resources that allow you to dig down deeper into more technical areas, some code samples, and some of the talks that go into these areas in more detail. I think it's fair to say that most developers who consume APIs probably end up using uh, SDKs that are provided by the vendor. I, I mean, many API providers that I've talked to consider providing SDKs absolutely essential uh, for developers to adopt that API. Fortunately, use of SDKs can bring their own set of problems. One of the most pro common problems I see is you build this HTTP API or REST API, and then you create this service wrapper around the API basically turning it into RPC. Because the thing about RPC is 
It's really not a characteristic of the API itself, but it's a style of how you make a call to a remote API. And it's probably fairly safe to say that most developers, when working with APIs, usually turn to a client SDK provided by the provider. I know most API providers believe that they have to provide SDKs to ad achieve developer adoption. Unfortunately, depending on how those SDKs are built, they can bring their own set of problems. And in some ways, they can completely negate the benefits of the HTTP API in the first place. This sometimes happens when you build what calls like a service wrapper around the API. So you end up on the client side with just a set of a procedural library that in turn then makes the calls to that REST API. And effectively what you're doing is you're just turning your API into an RPC API, but you're doing it with your client library. Because the key thing about RPC is it's not really a characteristic of the API itself. It's a characteristic, it's a mechanism of how to rem invoke a remote API. The idea of a RPC when it was originally invented was to make remote calls look like local calls. And that's exactly what you're doing by building a service wrapper library. What in effect you're doing is really moving the point of coupling. Instead of the consumer of the API coupling on the HTTP API, which is a very flexible type of API, they're now coupling on your client library, which is just your standard compiled procedural library, which has all kinds of runtime compilation type binding issues. The other challenge with SDKs is that it's really hard to do it well. Some people try and use code generators, but it's really hard to generate good client-side code. And what will happen is when you try and support multiple platforms, you end up kind of supporting the lowest common denominator of functionality across those platforms. Or the other option is some platforms end up becoming second-class citizens, and they don't get the feature, new features that are introduced into an API until much later on. The other problem with SDKs is that in the way when they're built as wrappers, the API provider has to make choices about how the API is going to get consumed. Because depending on usage scenarios, you often deal with fault issues in different ways. There's different ways that you handle return data. There's different tolerances to uh, delays and timeouts and retries. So in the case of client SDKs, they always have to make these choices as opinionated implementations in those client SDKs. So it's not nearly as flexible for the end consumer, the user of the SDK. So to bring this back to our theme of food metaphors, eating a salad is a really healthy choice until you cover it with a ton of salad dressing and croutons. So be wary of hiding that HTTP abstraction, the HTTP API behind some kind of RPC abstraction. Now, having made all these criticisms of client SDKs, there are some times when client SDKs are the right solution. And it comes down to 
having control over both the client application that's consuming the API and the server. If you control both sides of the wire and you can control and synchronize and coordinate those deployments, then using an SDK might very well be the right solution. Is it the same team building the client and server? Can you push the client application out to wherever that client application is deployed so that when there is an update to the client SDK that you can also push a new version of the client application? Or do you have to wait for the users of the application to pull it? Like, it, Does it have to go through an app store? Right? So now you, you have this kind of synchronization period between when can you update the, the server versus when can you update the client? Can a user choose not to accept an update? What happens? Because the user's now got a down-rev client. And even if you can synchronize them also, what happens during that really short time, over, time frame where there's a changeover, where you have pushed out uh, a new version of the client, but a user has not yet received it? Like, What happens during that short period of time? There's a few scenarios where it really, it really can work. Um, and one example of this is with JavaScript clients, where you have a JavaScript client that is running in the browser, and that JavaScript client is downloaded from the API or the website that hosts the API. So really, you're just consuming your own API for the purposes, let's say you've got an Angular client or an Ember client. And in those cases, you can fairly easily and fairly quickly synchronize the deployment of that new JavaScript client with the API that you push out to your, your website. Now, that works until somebody says, ah, you have an API. Okay, well, can we start consuming that from this mobile application or this other third-party application? So now there's another component that you don't have control over the deployment lifecycle that now takes dependency on that API. Now you have an issue is, well, we want to make a change to this API. It's okay, we can deploy a new version of the JavaScript client, but we can't necessarily change that third party immediately. So there, all of a sudden, independent involvability of components becomes much more important. So you have to look at the API and the scope and say, do I really have control over this? And can I can coordinate these deployments? You would really think that if somebody actually had gone to the trouble of writing a PhD dissertation, which contained the definition of something, that there wouldn't be a whole lot of ambiguity as to what it means. Unfortunately, uh, REST is what they call an architectural style, which is not a concept that people are really too used to, and it's kind of vague in some aspects, but precise in other aspects, but it's not something people are used to dealing with. So the end result is we have a wide variety of interpretations of what it means. I came up with the chocolate chip cookie analogy as a way of trying to point out what the differences are and what the significance of what REST is trying to do versus what people sometimes think it's trying to do. So we all know kids love to eat chocolate chip cookies, right? You serve them at a party because you want to make kids happy. Well, the adults too, right? 
But what defines a chocolate chip cookie? Well, basically, it needs to be a cookie, and it needs to have chocolate chips in it, right? Those are the two fundamental properties. But what's the recipe for a chocolate chip cookie? There's hundreds of different recipes for chocolate chip cookies. There's all sorts of additional ingredients that are put in. Some people make it with butter. Some people make it with margarine. Some people make them with lard. Like that, There's just a wide variety. Are they wrong? Is there an official one? No, they're all valid. Because the concept of a chocolate chip cookie is not a particularly precise concept down to the details of the recipe. The thing is, developers... When they hear rest, they want a recipe. They want, okay, well, what are the exact rules that I need to follow in order to do rest? And when rest started to become popular, the framework, web framework designers wanted to make it easy for people to do rest with their framework because rest was the big bee's knees. So framework people deal in real implementation. So they had to make recipes for rest. So they made decisions in theory, should be consistent with the constraints of rest. But over time, what happened is people who chose a particular framework took that particular recipe and said, oh, well, this is rest. And what ends up happening is all sorts of rules have been invented that says this is rest when it isn't actually, it's just one particular flavor. Now, the constraints that define REST are client-server, stateless, caching, uniform interface, layered, and code-on-demand, right? They're kind of abstract, hairy-fairy, hand-wavy type concepts, but they do have very precise meanings. That's not really what's important, though. What is important is the effects that those constraints have. They have the effect of making things scalable, evolvable, fault-tolerant, and composable. These are the kind of things that we are trying to achieve. So when you're trying to consume APIs, you are going to run into difficulty insofar as, well, this one, they, they all say they're rest, but there are very different variations in, in how that is achieved. And when you run into the eventual argument, which you always will, where somebody says, oh, that's not rest, then this is, this is how you respond. You ask what constraint is being violated and what is the negative impact. You have to focus on the effects of the thing that the person is saying is not restful. You know, don't, 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 tr there's all sorts of guidance out there that says, you know, oh, you can't possibly have a verb in a, in a, in a, uh, a URL because that's not rest and you have to support all the methods or it's not rest. Those are overextensions that people have applied in order to try and understand what rest is, but they are not critical things. And the other thing to remember is kids also like oatmeal cookies too. Right, And there are some advantages to oatmeal cookies. Like if you've got a kid in the backseat of your car and they're eating chocolate chip cookies, you're going to get chocolate all over the place. Okay, So rest is not always the right answer to the problem. It is one answer to the problem. And you have to understand the costs and the benefits in order to make the right choices. JSON HTTP APIs are probably the most popular style of API that you're going to run into. And 
I like to perceive them as kind of the Putin of the API world. They are quick and easy to do, but they may not be the best thing for you in the long term. The challenge with just using HTTP to retrieve plain JSON objects uh, is it kind of forces the client to know exactly what's coming back from the URL. So there needs to be quite a tight coupling between when I call this particular URL, I'm going to get this specific blob of JSON back that contains these particular properties. And this prevents servers from being able to change certain things about what they return without breaking clients. This is what they call failure of the self-description constraint and it affects the evolvability application. Now, that may not be a problem for you. Another option is what they call like adding hypermedia. You could add hypermedia into your JSON responses, and it does make it a bit more of a healthy option, uh, but you still have the issue of you just getting generic application slash JSON really doesn't tell you anything in the message about what's getting back. So again, makes it difficult for the server to change things. It uses, the, there's a phrase which is out of band coupling. So there's coupling between the client and server, which is not included in the message that is re returned back from the, the API. When working with an API, you'll often see that the API have adopted a certain set of conventions uh, in the way they construct response bodies, in the way that they uh, use the status codes, and just in generally in, in how the overall API is structured. And from one response to the next, you'll, you'll see certain amounts of consistency that occur. And some APIs are starting to document this set of API conventions as a media type itself. So going back to this notion of self-description, the idea is that when you return back the response from the API, the content type in the response header includes this media type. For example, with GitHub, it'll say it's vnd.github.v3 plus JSON. And this tells the client, oh, this is a set of conventions that this particular document uh, is adhering to. And it gives some flexibility insofar as the server later on can turn around and say, oh, this is GitHub v4. And the client can go, oh, ooh, something's changed. And it can either go, well, okay, I also know how to process v4, or no, I have no idea how to do it. And there it has a few choices. It can say, well, I can do my best and try and process it as if it was a v3 and see if it works. Or, I, you know, the, the, the client all of a sudden can start to make intelligent decisions as to whether or not it is capable of processing that particular media type. And... This is it, it's a major step forward in API design when APIs start really labeling the responses that they get back with this kind of identifier that says, look, this is how this data is structured. Um, it has a bit of a downside in that it doesn't really promote sharing outside of the, you know, the walls of the company. One of the things that really works well with media types across the web is when somebody creates a media type like HTML that everybody can use or Atom that, or RSS that many different companies can use. And that's where we really start to leverage the benefits of the web. But let's not 
take too much away from these guys. This this is a, it is a good step forward. It's a major step forward beyond uh, application slash JSON. I'll just mention one other little nugget with with regards to versioning. When you start using this kind of media type uh, to describe your response, there is a way for the client to tell the server in advance, oh, by the way, I understand V3 and V2, but I don't understand V4, at which point the server could actually be intelligent to that and go, ah, I'm dealing with an old client here that doesn't support V4, so therefore I'm only going to send him a V3 variant. And that's a nice way of being able to support uh, backward and forward compatibility. Another approach that you will often run into, or you may run into whilst consuming APIs, involves the use of generic hypermedia types. These are hypermedia types like HAL, Uber, JSON, LD, stands for linked data, Mason, JSON API, which is associated with the use of Ember, and Siren. What makes these similar is that they all provide mechanisms to describe links between documents, forms for capturing uh, data entry. They have mechanics for describing lists of things, and they allow embedding one type of resource into another uh, resource for performance reasons mainly. What they don't include natively is any way of defining application semantics. Like they don't tell you the meaning of what it is that you're retrieving. So you'll get a document that represents a customer or a, an invoice or a supplier or a, a book, an item, a product that you're going to purchase, and none of the meaning of that is described in, in the specifications to these generic hypermedia types. The description of those application semantics are left to secondary mechanisms, either uh, namespaces or schemas, vocabularies, ontologies. There's so many different ways of describing them. And there's different ways that you can point to those schemas or namespaces from within the hypermedia types. But it's important to realize that there's this kind of break up here. There's a separation, a distinction between the semantics of the media type itself, and then the application semantics. Now, the last type of REST API that we're going to discuss is the hypermedia-driven scenario-based API. So this is, this, this is the real manifestation of hypermedia as the engine of application state, or some people you may be familiar with the, the acronym, the horrible acronym, HITIUS. Uh, this style of building uh, applications forces you to build really quite different clients. Uh, clients must be far more reactive to the responses that uh, they receive from the server because it's the server that is truly guiding the workflow of the application. Uh, clients will only make requests to the server when they're presented with links and representations to follow. Uh, once you start getting into this style of hypermedia, you really need to have a good caching story because otherwise you'll start making redundant round trips to the server. And in this case, 
this notion of link relations, uh, which is like a type associated to a particular link, are your point of coupling so that you can discover what links are available within a particular representation. It's really the the ultimate goal of having a healthy, balanced diet when it comes to uh, the API world. Despite the picture of cake and ice cream that I show on the screen. One thing that is inevitable when building APIs is that change is going to happen. Requirements are going to change. And change isn't necessarily a bad thing because we got something wrong. Change could very much be a matter of well, we did it right, and the customer really likes it, and the customer also wants to now have these additional pieces of functionality. That's a really great way of building APIs, to start out really small and grow based on customer feedback. It has a lot of similarities to the difference between the software development methodologies of Agile versus Waterfall. The Waterfall methodology it was based on the, the research of saying, well, change further down the line is very expensive. So we want to limit change that occurs further down the line in the software development life cycle. So we're going to do lots of design up front, and we're going to look at the, do an analysis, and we're going to make sure that we get everything right before we actually start into the implementation phase. Whereas if you look at the Agile methodology, the Agile methodology says, no, you know what? Change is going to happen. And we're going to iterate quickly. We're going to get new code into the hands of the user very quickly. And we're going to get the feedback from them. And we're going to grow that and evolve it. And that's why evolution is so critical. Now, there's this assumption that versioning is the way to deal with change. But the reality is versioning is really painful. Versioning is a statement by the API provider that they can't really deal with backwards and forwards compatibility. So you as a client developer, you're going to have to deal with it. And unless you're going to stay on an old API version for as long as it's supported, then you're going to have to update client code to adapt to the breaking changes that have forced the API provider to produce a new version of the API. At which point you kind of have a choice. You can update that client code to now work the way the new version does. Or maybe you can write the code so that it supports both versions, so that you provide that backwards and forwards compatibility yourself. A little extra effort in building clients can go a long way towards making uh, applications resilient to change. There's a few kind of pieces of, piece of advice uh, when building clients. It's, it's, first of all, look at the REST constraints, because the REST constraints, if you do follow them all, they do enable change uh, but you pay the price, right? I mean, there's work to be done to give you that flexibility. The other perspective is just kind of a philosophy, and that's like, be paranoid about those server-side developers. Like, don't trust them. They're telling you that this is what's happening today, but maybe tomorrow it's going to change. So 
before going and arbor blindly reading that property, why not check to make sure the property exists before actually going and reading it? Because, you know, the server developers may be the most well-intentioned people around, but they may have other external pressures put on them that say, you have to change such and such a thing. So when you're building client code, you really should be defensive uh, in making assumptions about what the server is going to do for you. And there's a variety of ways of being flexible. I mean, just simple things like you receive properties from the server. Don't don't walk through them with the assumption that they're always going to be in a particular order. Don't assume properties are always going to be present. Don't assume what the content type is that you're going to go receive. Check. There's a content type header that tells you what content type is. Even if today you think that that's what is always going to be retrieved, don't. Check it first. Don't assume that URLs will never change. Make sure you've got code that will handle redirections in there. Try and create a level of decoupling between the actual URI identifier and the concept that it represents within your application. Code reuse is one of those things that we have been chasing for a very long time. We're constantly trying to find ways of turning software into components and be able to reuse them. In code-based systems, we use inheritance and interfaces and libraries with shared types in order to enable reuse. But it's dependent on that shared type system, and that's just not possible in a distributed system on different platforms. REST itself is not really optimized for the notion of API reuse. It has happened. The one API that uh, did gain some traction is the Metablog API that uh, I believe WordPress supports for uploading uh, blog posts, uh, for creating blog posts uh, and blogs. But generally, reuse on the web it occurs with media types and link relations. Media types, like HTML, RSS, vCard, Atom, Atom feeds. Uh, I mean, even in the web applications like JavaScript, it's, it's a shared format for sharing scripting code. Right? So these are the tools that enable uh, reuse in a very flexible way on the web. Now, with some of the generic hypermedia types, we've also talked about profiles and schemas, and that definitely has the possibility to be another unit of reuse on the web. Uh, personally, I'm not completely convinced. I'm still on the fence with regards to uh, profiles for reuse, but it's important to realize that we're not playing in the same world as shared local code systems. The web does reuse differently. Once we understand that things work differently on the web, when we recognize that media types are this, this kind of unit of reuse, then we can start to build client libraries around those media type specifications. Now, obviously, you're not going to be able to reuse across different platforms, but within the same platform, you can write uh, libraries that 
take advantage of the semantics of those media types and provide reusable functionality. And it needs to be re-implemented on other platforms, but you're still all based around that common shared specification. There's some funny aspects about the characteristics of reuse. Achieving reuse is more about focusing on the things that really matter and avoiding the things that don't. These two little components that I show here on the screen, they come from a home automation kit called Little Bits. And we have a light sensor and a temperature sensor. And these components are electronic components that can be just plugged together to do all kinds of neat home automation stuff. But if you look at a, think of a light sensor, uh, you can use it to control other devices. But when it detects light, it doesn't care where the light's coming from. It doesn't care whether it's sunlight. It doesn't care whether it's a, a, a LED light or an incandescent bulb. It doesn't care. The same goes with the temperature sensors. It's whether it's the heat of the sun or the heat from some other appliance or it's from fire. It doesn't care. So it, it's about focusing on the things that matter and that is what allows things to be reused in many different situations. Now, if we think of it in terms of media types on the web, think of an, an RSS feed or a, a V card, which contains contact information or an iCalendar, those media types contain just the pieces of information needed to interact an RSS feed. It might contain scientific articles, it might contain recipes, but it doesn't care because its sole job is just to say, here's a set of documents that... Uh, were written by somebody at some point in time, and I'm going to tell you when there's a new document there. It, it limits itself as to what its knowledge is. An eye calendar doesn't care whether it's your kid's soccer game or whether it's an interview for a new job, right? It limits the knowledge that it has, and that gives it the benefit of being reusable in very in lots of different scenarios. So, it, it kind of begs the question, can you interact with something without actually knowing the meaning of the content? And in many cases, yes, you can. And this is one beautiful thing about hypermedia is hypermedia gives you those controls to allow you to interact with things without necessarily knowing the details of what it is that thing that you're working with. So because you can never have too many food analogies, I'm going to hit you with some more. So here's, here's my pots and pans analogy. And this relates directly to the way I perceive media types can be used in web APIs. And how it's very important to build clients that are capable of consuming lots of different media types. Because... You know, you can you cook with just one pan? Yes, sure, you can. But it's obviously not the most optimum way to prepare meals, right? There are different types of pans that solve different types of purposes. But it's not like they're not, you know, a frying pan. I can cook different things. I can cook a hamburger in a frying pan. I can cook a fried egg in a frying pan. I can cook bacon in a frying pan, right? So they're not specific to a particular food, but they do address a particular type of problem. 
one of the tendencies that I'm seeing in in what well, I referred earlier to the generic hypermedia type is this kind of goal to produce the single media type that solves all the problems. And this I kind of like to think of it as like this Star Trek food replicator. You say, make me a bag of popcorn and out comes a bowl of popcorn, right? Uh, and, and I think, you know, maybe one day we will get there, but I think it's going to take us a very long time before we can build something quite that sophisticated. Uh, in the meantime, I think media types that solve very specific or, or solve a certain class of problems, and we can take that set of problems and build support for those media types into our clients. And I think that can bring us a, a very long way. Now, it is important to be aware you can take this idea too far, okay? The idea of having a media type for every single possible instance of something that you want to build, you know, and I've seen people try and do it where they try and build a business system where there's a media type for an invoice and a media type for a customer and a media type. Like, it, it's too much. It's too much spec writing, uh, to be to become manageable and the client and server become coupled on every single different type of business entity that you have and you, you you're in some ways you're kind of back to the the coupling that you would have in a generic application slash JSON environment so I mean there are some scenarios where they're very specific media type makes sense I mean you can't really make a waffle without a waffle iron so, but it, it, the, the scenarios are more rare and it's something that we want to try and avoid because they make reuse hard if something is built for just a single purpose. Just out of curiosity, does anybody know what this device is over here? You get bonus points for knowing what that device is. Yes, that's an asparagus pot for cooking asparagus. The interesting secret to clients that consume REST and specifically hypermedia APIs is that it, it really doesn't matter how wonderful that API is, that hypermedia API that implements scenario-driven workflow stuff. If the client code decides to couple specifically on URLs, and make assumptions about exactly what content is going to come back from it and exactly what status codes are going to be returned. The server can't do anything about it. The coupling is dictated by the client. Now, on the flip side of that is if you have a simple JSON HTTP API that doesn't do any of the hypermedia and doesn't return self-descriptive uh, content types clients can still do they can still take action to try and minimize the coupling the client code is really important when it comes to enabling evolution uh, between the client and the server and just because we, we kind of touched on this before just because a service creates a version 2 of an API doesn't necessarily need mean you need to create a whole new version of the client and it doesn't mean you need to stop supporting version one of that client. And this actually becomes really important when you when you actually are in a real life cycle where you're doing 
deployments and you've got a, a version in test and a version in stage and a version in prod and maybe there's some problem happening with the server in prod and you want to test to make sure that the new client actually you want to be able to point the different versions to, of, of client to different versions of the server and you get multi-tenancy scenarios where well we, we're supporting multiple different customers but this customer isn't ready to upgrade their clients but this customer absolutely wants to upgrade their clients because they want new features that are available in the new version so it, it, it is there's a big difference between an api that only has one instance somewhere in the world of their api you know consider it the the twitter api there is only one twitter api but if you're building you know DNS servers or you're building some other thing that's going to be deployed multiple times, there could be many different deployments of that API. The photo here is a picture of food served omakase style. It's a style of ordering food often done in sushi restaurants where the chef is given the option to serve whatever they want to serve. The flexibility gives the possibility of the chef to deliver the highest quality food and stock for, for less than the regular price. Giving servers the ability to change what they deliver also opens all kinds of possibilities. One example that I've actually implemented in the past is I build a media type for uh, describing a question, something that you might see in a dialogue box in a, in a client application. So once I built the functionality in the client to understand that media type and how to present that question, that dialogue to the user, I then had the ability anywhere within the application workflow to insert that dialogue. So for example, there's a place where a user was deleting an item. I could make changes on the server, so now that instead of actually performing that operation, they would get a confirmation dialog back to confirm they actually wanted, and if they responded in the positive, then they would continue on the previous path of actually deleting the response. Another example I have in a sample that I use for demoing often is it's an expense approval application that has a place where you can click on a button and it will show you the receipt that was submitted as part of the expense. Now, receipts come in many forms. They may be emailed to you as an HTML file. They may be uh, an image. They could be a PDF. And the image it could be a, a TIFF file, a PNG. There's a whole bunch of different ways that it can happen. But what happens is the client follows the link. It returns the bits for that receipt representation and the client looks at the content type and says oh this is a tiff i know what to do with this or ah oh, this is a pdf it doesn't know in advance what actual type is getting back it just knows conceptually what it is that's coming back there's this is why it's very important for responses that are returned to be self-descriptive they must explain to the client this is exactly what is being returned 
Another advantage when building client code that uses this approach of breaking the request from the response is that things tend to happen naturally asynchronously. You send the request in kind of a fire and forget type mechanism, but then hook up a handler so that when the response returns, the response is then processed. But it's processed fairly independently to that request, so there isn't any coupling that occurs from the context of the request to the handling of the response. This separation also makes testing a lot easier, because now we can actually manufacture the request based on whatever domain information we want to pass over the wire, and we can look at the HTTP request that is about to be sent over the wire and confirm, yes, this is what we actually want to send over the wire without actually doing so. The same goes for response handling. We can make a... We can manufacture an HTTP response object and then feed that into our response handling code and make sure that the appropriate things happen. When you have a service wrapper library style approach, usually that remote call is exposed as a single procedure call that does all of the steps of making the request, generating the HTTP request, sending the request over the wire, dealing with error conditions, processing the response body. All those steps tend to be wrapped up into a single procedure call, and often it's not easy to get in and shim a kind of fake network in there. So testing gets a lot easier. And the other advantage of separating out uh, the response handling is it allows us to centralize that response handling. HTTP and REST has this concept called the uniform interface. And the general idea is that throughout a distributed system, all of the components of that system all share this exact same interface of using an HTTP request with headers and body and have standardized methods and headers. We, as a client, can really take advantage of that because we know that the response to every request we make has certain standard behavior. And we can obtain a significant amount of code reuse by centralizing our response handling. So when we get a response, I mean, an easy example is re redirects, right? Redirects are handled pretty much the same way, regardless of the resource that you're requesting. Uh, re responses like 502, server unavailable, if they provide a, like a retry after header, then you should be able to execute that retry behavior irrespective of whether or not of the resource that you're trying to retrieve. Often you'll find cases like uh, 400s and 404s. You can do largely standardized handling for that. I have a pet peeve when I see a lot of API documentation that lists the resources that exist in an API, and then for each resource, they list the status codes that return from those, and they'll say, well, this could return a 400, or it could return a, a 200 or a 201. And my question is always, wow, how did, how did you write that service so that it never returns a 500? And 
the point being is you can't write code that will never ever fail, will never ever become not available. So why are we singling out certain status codes as well this particular resource supports just returning these status codes? No, all the status codes. You may not use redirects today, but you may use redirects in the future, which is why it's essential whenever you're accessing re- APIs, HTTP APIs, that you should try and handle all of the responses, all of the status codes. Now, I'm not saying you have to write distinct, unique code for every single status code, but the status codes are defined into ranges, the 400s, the 500s, and you can use those ranges to be able to capture, okay, well, if it's a 500, other than this one and this one that we have special behavior for, then do this. If it's a 404, we do this. If it's a 400, do this. And if it's any one of the other 400s, then we're going to do something else. But you at least have to account for every single status code. One of the things that centralized response handling helps to prevent is the introduction of hidden coupling uh, by having inline response handling. What will often happen is a developer will write a code to make a request, will say, oh, well, I know this is what comes back from the server, so I'm just going to go ahead and process it. And they end up not looking at the response headers to confirm, yes, this is actually what the server sent. And that can introduce, I mean, it works fine as long as the server doesn't change, but the cl- the code ends up being tightly coupled to a set of expectations that may change at some point in the future. I've mentioned a couple of times in passing this need for clients to be able to support multiple media types because either there are two different representations of the same thing or maybe because over time there's a decision made that we're going to move to this new format because it has more flexibility. And I have run into a fair amount of resistance from people when talking to them about this idea where they say, oh, well, that just puts too much of a burden and it's too complex in order for clients to support multiple media types, it's easier for them just to support one. And I'm still, I still need to dig to the bottom of where this belief is. I mean, I sit there with my phone and I'm watching it playing like a game with 22 players on a soccer field, and it's calculating the dynamics of a ball being kicked across a pitch. And I'm saying, no, oh, pretty sure this mobile platform is quite capable of processing more than one media type. We're not talking about massive amounts of complexity. The other irony is often what happens is when you support multiple media types, each individual one, because it's more focused to a purpose, tends to be much simpler. My experience has been more complex media types that attempt to solve all different use cases actually end up being considerably more sophisticated because they're trying to solve uh, such a large number of scenarios. So if you can, whilst building a client, actually build in the support so that you can switch out and support multiple different media types concurrently, that's definitely the way forward. And it really helps uh, with backward compatibility if uh, media types are changed over time. Consuming APIs that implement the full hypermedia as the engine of application state require a fairly different way of thinking about how to build clients. They need to be built in a way that is much more reactive 
to the responses that are coming back. One of the most useful tools that I've found in dealing with this type of API is to implement a client-side class which encapsulates the entire client state. You sort of consider it like a view model for your entire application rather than a view model for a single view. And when responses are returned from the server, they're applied against that, against that state object to cause a state change. And often, if, if you have a UI to your client, you'll hook up event handlers to that state object, which will then re be reflected in the user interface. And have, it works for simple applications, just having a single client state object, but you may need to break that down into a graph of objects, or a graph of state objects, or a tree of state objects. There's another type of construct that I find useful, which is the notion of missions. A mission is a state management object that's temporary. I've mentioned link relations a number of times, and I've also talked about how responses should be handled by the client independent of the request that's made. And that's only a partial truth. The response can be used along with the context of the link relation. And when you put the two together, that link relation type and the media type, you get quite a powerful way of expressing application semantics. Uh, I, one example I like to give is, if you're approached by a dog, what would you do? Well, you know, there's not really enough information to make any kind of decisions there. But if somebody were to say you were approached by an angry dog, so you have a qualifier to that fairly generic noun dog, now it's like, okay, well, you run like hell, right? So it's about providing enough context in the interaction in order to be able to take action based on the information provided. And link relations are that secondary piece of coupling uh, that are allowed in the RESTful architectural style. I've realized we've covered a fairly large range of different concepts over a variety of different API styles. And if there are areas that you'd be interested in digging into more details, rather than just the kind of hand-wavy uh, concepts presented here, I have uh, some additional talks. The Xamarin Evolve, uh, Xamarin Evolve, I did a talk on, it was called Using Hypermedia to Avoid the App Store, but it's about using hypermedia uh, in mobile clients to make those clients more flexible and require less updates. And that's available out on YouTube. I'll make sure to add a link into these slides. And... Um, the crafting evolvable API representations. This is more on the producing an API side of things, but how to build representations that are more evolvable. Uh, that uh, talk, the slides for that are up, and I will be doing that talk again at NDC Oslo in June. So hopefully uh, that will be recorded there and available for people to watch. I have a number of projects uh, on GitHub also. Uh, the Hypermedia Sample Clients are the ones that uh, I used in the Xamarin Evolve talk. I've also built a client library for the Runscope API, which is listed in uh, in the Runscope uh, organization on GitHub. 
Uh, I also call it a web pack, which is my kind of terminology for saying it's client tooling, but it's not a uh, service wrapper style client SDK. Uh, and I've played around. I've done similar things for the Git API and for Salesforce. Also taking their existing uh, uh, client library and refactoring it to break out the request and response and encapsulating uh, request construction into link objects. For more general purpose libraries, I have a, an organization called Tava Software, and in there I have URI templates for constructing URIs. I have my link library for being a re request um, factory and also to help with deserializing links from hypermedia type media types. And then I have some implementations of libraries that implement standardized uh, media types. Tavis Home for a hypermedia discovery document, Tavis Problem for reporting errors from APIs, and JSON Patch uh, for sending patches to uh, do diffs effectively. Well, it's not diffs, it's uh, operational type patches to be able to make partial updates uh, within APIs. So hopefully the uh, perspectives that I've shared over the last hour have satisfied your appetite for API knowledge, at least for this evening, and I hope I've not left you with a bitter taste in your mouth. And with that, I will say thank you very much for attending the talk and open the floor up for questions.